someone get me a bottle of water? I need a bottle of water. Thank you. Let's stand. Come now, fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise his name, I'm fixed upon it. Name of God's redeeming love. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm come. Good. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Priest, my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray. Father, thank you that um, you do have our hearts, not because we went seeking you to give them, but because you captured them by your grace and transformed them, transplanted them from dead heart to living heart, and all of it for your glory and for our own inexpressible joy. And so we thank you. Praise you for your kindness to us. Help us now, Lord, to um, learn your truth and to, uh, Lord, would you protect us from error and fill us with your word so that we can minister to one another and serve as a church and worship and learn and teach and all of it in proper balance and for your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. My apologies for the delay. We realized at the last minute that we created the notes and never printed them. So they are on the way. And uh, if you don't have a set, which I think none of you do at this point, um, just know that they're going to be here in a, in a minute. Uh, at the top of those notes is a section that says introduction and a big blank under it. So I'm going to start filling in the blank right now. And uh, it wasn't necessarily for you to write anything there. But uh, we've been studying together what it means to pursue as a church body true community. Um, when I think about what Calvary Bible Church needs and the potential dangers that lie ahead of us, I, I, it seems to me that there are kind of two ways to fall off the beam. Now imagine yourself an Olympian on the balance beam. And some of you guys are going to have a hard time doing that, but uh, just for the sake of, <laughs> of clarity, maybe. Um, there are kind of two ways to fall off the beam of, of being balanced and, and uh, correct biblically. On the one hand, we could become so focused on relationships and fellowship that we would downplay the need for robust teaching and preaching of the word. On the other hand, we could become so entirely focused on sound doctrine and proper theology that we neglect the one another commands of scripture. And neither one of those options is good for us. And there's the notes, I think. My desire is that we would have a church body that stands perfectly balanced 
on these two. We have right doctrine. We're strong on, on expository teaching and spiritual discernment and getting the message of the truth right. We need to be strong. We need to be stronger and more devoted to that. Never let up on our diligence in that. But we also need to be people who live in community. Not, not just that we live in proximity to one another, but that we are involved in the community of Christ, ministering to one another personally. We've always had a strong focus on doctrine and, and preaching and biblical discernment, but let's be clear on this point. The Word of God is foundational to everything else. The Word of God is foundational to everything else. I mean, consider this. We wouldn't even know Jesus. I mean, that's fundamental, right? But we wouldn't even know Jesus if it were not for the Word of God. We must continue and even become stronger in our ministry of the Word. On the other hand, we also need to work hard at building true biblical community. The church is not a seminary. The church is not a preaching station. We are a body. And that's why that analogy is used. We are a vine. That's why, or the branches to the vine, that's why that analogy is used. We are living stones. That's why Peter didn't just say stones. We are living stones. The point of all three of those analogies is life. And we have life because of Jesus Christ. The church is a living community. It is the dwelling place of God on earth. And, and God has so ordered his church that we need each other to be complete. I need you to be complete. I need my wife. I need my children. I need other brothers and sisters in Christ in order for me to be complete. And here's why. None of us is Jesus, right? None of us has all the characteristics and qualities of Jesus Christ. We are strong, each individually, we are strong in certain areas, stronger in certain areas uh, that, that display the excellencies of Christ than in other areas where, where we tend to be weak. And there are other members of the body who tend to be strong in the areas where we're weak and maybe weak in other areas. We need each other. And so on the one hand, um, we need strong, sound doctrine and spiritual discernment, but on the other, we need community. And we kind of see this whole life of the body scenario played out for us in 1 Corinthians 12. So turn with me there, and let me just read a section of this for, for us, a pretty extensive section, beginning with verse 12. This is 12.12, 12, 1 Corinthians 12.12. 12, and as you're turning there, let me just start reading for the sake of time. For even as the body is one... And yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, whether, uh, and, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the member of the body, members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now, some of you zoned out while I was reading that. It's an, it's an extensive passage of scripture, but so important for us as we think about community. I want to make the point here that the church was designed by God as a spiritually organic body. We are not just a loose grouping of individual parts. All the parts have been put together in such a way that we make up a spiritually living, organic living body. Uh, no part of the body can say, I am perfectly fine without the members, the other members of this body. None of the members can say, it's just me and Jesus. Um, I don't need, we hear this all the time, right? I don't need the institutionalized church. It's just me and Jesus. I've got God's word. I've got God's spirit. That's all I need. I don't need you. Really? Well, let's go back to God's word and see that the word of God is, says what is contrary to, to that proposition. You do need the other members of the body. You may not think you do. You may not like the fact that you need to be dependent on other members of the body. You might not like what they say to you from time to time that maybe you need to hear. But it's necessary. You can't say, my Christianity is about me and Jesus. Whenever, uh, whenever I talk about the subject of the body and the parts of the body, my mind goes back to the Adams family. They're not former members of our church. I mean, you know, the old, the black and white uh, television show that was on when I was a kid, the Adams family. Um, and they had a lot of creepy, Uncle Fester was my favorite. Um, but there was a character in there that uh, was, was not really a person. He was just a hand. Now, how many of you remember? It's confession time, right? Okay, what was the hand's name? Wasn't that clever? Thing. Um, now, I don't know who came up with that, the idea uh, of having a hand by itself, but you've got to admit, uh, that was both clever and creepy. I mean, the hand would show up to deliver the mail. The hand would show up to uh, light Gomez's cigars. And when you think about it, that's just weird. 
Listen, having a hand that is disconnected from the rest of the body, that's not normal. That's creepy. Um, and the whole point of that was, this isn't normal. A hand separated from the body is a monster. And so it is with a person's relationship with the church. Show me a professing Christian who chooses not to be personally engaged in true koinonia with other members of the body, and I will show you one who has some significant spiritual problems and disabilities, no matter, listen to this, no matter how much theology they know. No matter how much. You know somebody who knows a lot of theology and is not actively participating in personal ministry in the body. Um, and I'll show you somebody who's probably a problem to their family and going to be a problem to their church. There, there may be ignorance where there should be knowledge, even though they know theology. There will likely be pride where there ought to be humility. There will likely be a critical spirit or just a sense of Relationships are for the weak, but not for strong people like me, kind of mentality. Beloved, that, that kind of thinking is not only not good, it's not healthy, it's not edifying, it's not pleasing to the Lord, and it's not biblical, no matter how well you know your theology. I've said this many times. In my experience, in 21 years at Calvary Bible Church, some of the people who have sinned the most egregiously were people we all thought were the spiritual elite because they knew theology so well. But they were so focused, so focused on the theology that they were out of balance. They didn't allow other people into their lives, and they weren't investing in other people's lives. And it's totally out of balance. It's like having a car, and two of your tires are flat, and two of them are inflated. You're not going anywhere. It's like being in a rowboat and you only got one oar. I mean, you may be able to paddle, but you're going to spin around in circles. You've got to have both wings of the airplane. We need the truth. We need sound doctrine, but we need each other as well. And if we don't have that, something is desperately wrong. We need one another. We need biblical community, and that's what this study is about. And now, last week, we talked about four dimensions of koinonia. Koinonia means what class? Fellowship or community. And there were four, um, four expressions of koinonia or four translations of, or usages of koinonia in the New Testament. And the first one was what? I'm just real briefly going to go through all four. First one was what? Relationships, right. <clears throat> Um, I don't know if anybody actually said that. I heard mumbling. Um, relationship. What kind of koinonia or fellowship um, are we talking about here? When we talk about relationship, what are we talking about? It might not be what you think, but just try to remember last week. Somebody? Anybody? What? Union and communion. But here it's primarily union with Christ. Union with Christ. Uh, Romans 6.11 talks about, uh, Paul talks about being dead in sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Christ, that's Paul's favorite term for talking about our union with Christ. In Christ Jesus. Romans 8, uh, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there, uh, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. For those who are out of Christ Jesus, plenty of condemnation. 
Ephesians. Just turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Let me just show you this. Paul was fixated on this, um, the concept of the centrality of being in Christ. Watch this. I'm just going to point some out here. Verse 3, kind of at the end of verse 3. Um, he says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Uh, at the end of that verse, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The beloved is not you. The beloved is Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 9. Uh, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. Uh, the end of verse 10. Well, verse 10, with a view to the administration uh, uh, suitable to the fullness of times, with the summing up of all things in him, things in earth and heaven and things uh, in, the, in the heavens and things on earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in him would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also have listened to the message of the truth of the gospel for your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him. And he just goes on and on. I would challenge you this week uh, or today, just spend time in Ephesians and just underline or circle or highlight every usage of that phrase or a synonymous phrase, in him, in Christ in whom, in the beloved. This is all about our union with Christ because true community is not derived from the fact that we share common goals and purposes with one another. That doesn't make us community. Rather, it is the fact that we share a common union with Jesus Christ. That's relationship. And so sometimes and frequently, when Paul speaks about this kind of relationship, this koinonia, he is talking about union with Christ. We are in fellowship with Christ. That's communion. And that's the foundation. Uh, I'm sorry, that's union. That's the foundation. We don't have communion unless there's union. And the second aspect of koinonia is what? Anybody remember? Partnership. partnership. And what is partnership? Sharing together. It's... Uh, Whereas relationships describe believers as a community, partnership describes them as community in what? Action. Action. This is our ministry together. This is serving. This is reaching out. This is, this is taking care of one another's needs. And then number three, the third kind of fellowship or koinonia is, so we've had relationship, we've had partnership, and the third one is what? Communion. And that's a reference to what? What? Okay, raise your hand. It's too much echo in here. I can't hear. Go ahead. Yeah, Russ. Sharing relationships, and that's what you were saying too, right, brother? Uh, sharing relationships. This this is the kind of fellowship where we really get involved in sanctification. This is where sanctification happens w between the members of the body. We are ministering to one another. This is where we engage in personal ministry through the one another commands of the New Testament. Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. By the way, admonish there is the uh, Greek word nutheteo, which is where we get nuthetic counseling from. 
We think of nuthetic in terms of rather than uh, the kind of worldly counseling where we just reflect back to you what's in your mind and in your heart. In nuthetic counseling, we admonish, we tell you what is true, where you are in error, and, and, and the source of your problems is that you're in error, either in your thinking or in your behavior or both, and that needs to change. There's truth, there's error, you're in error, come to the truth. And Paul is saying, as a member of the body of Christ, if you have the word of God and the Holy Spirit, you are equipped, you are competent to admonish, to counsel, to disciple one another. Um, uh, 2 Timothy 4.2, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. In Colossians 3.12 through 16, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. It's one another's a scripture, right? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also forgive. Beyond all these things, put on love. This is all personal ministry. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The perfect bond of unity. This is the unity of communion. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in which you were called into one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ which richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. There's admonishing again. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart. I mean, these are all some of the practical things going on between people who are striving to live in biblical community. We're not just greeting one another glad-handing, back-slapping, how was your week? Fine, how was yours? Good. Let's go listen to the sermon now. Okay, now let's not talk to each other again until next week when we come back and we glad-hand and we back-slap and we smile and we never ask any questions. We never minister to one another. Okay, so too much time on review here. Uh, communion. And then the, third, the fourth thing was what? For, fourth aspect of New Testament koinonia was what? sharing your material possessions. Once you identify the need, then you meet it. You try to meet it. You take the resources that you have, and uh, even out of your need sometimes, and you meet one another's needs. Now, let's, let's get into the new stuff. Wow, I only have 30 minutes. Uh, the concept of communion with God. Now, if you're reading along in Bridges' book, um, then you know that I've been kind of restructuring because I, I really think what we need it's closely associated to what Bridges is saying in his book, but Bridges is writing to the whole church of God and, and not to us. And so I want you to read that. It's very, very good. I'm restructuring it some because it's more focused on what I think we need. And then, we'll, and then you show up at your small group and you'll have a discussion. So there's like three prongs to this teaching on communion. And that's where you're going to practice it in your small group if not here. So the foundation of communion with one another, the foundation of communion with one another is personal communion with God. So the foundation of communion with one another is what, class? Okay, I just told you. Personal communion with God. Say it with me. Personal communion with God. Now some of you are feeling convicted already. Do you have personal communion with God? I imagine you're probably thinking, oh, some of you maybe, I don't know what that is. Good. That's why we're here. 
And that's why you're going to be in a small group tonight. Because we need to learn this. As Bridges writes on page 37, if you have your book, just as a house must have a foundation and a framework to hold it together, so our all-day communion with God must have a foundation and a framework to hold it together. The foundation of our communion with God is our, in his terms, our morning quiet time. Now, you might refer to your personal time with God as your morning devotions. My mom used to refer to it as her daily bread because she read the daily bread, so it was her personal time, and a lot of people used to call it that, or your personal worship time or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Bridges calls it quiet time. I, I, you know, somewhere along the way, I picked up that term. I know that term has been abused, and we don't need to get into that, but whatever you call it, um, I realize that it's not practical for everyone to have their time alone with God in the morning. I get that. Um, and what I want you to see, however, is um, uh, even though some of you may have circumstances to prevent you from being alone with God in the morning, the normal precedent from Scripture is that you'll meet with God in the morning. Now, that's not law. That's not some legalistic thing that you have to do. Some of you are coming home from work when the rest of us are waking up, okay? That's not, that's not practical for you to do it in the morning. I get that. And some of you, let me just say this too, and it's not in the notes. This is free. Some of you moms have little bitty babies, and, and your mind, if you can focus your mind for 20 seconds on one thought, you feel like you're doing pretty good. Okay, I understand that. We had seven children. The last time we had two at one time. And trying to have time with God is really hard. Trying to have concentrated time is really hard. So I would say two things to you as kind of a special group of people. Number one, don't beat yourself up over that and think, I'm a, I'm a lousy, second-rate Christian because I can't seem to get myself focused long enough to concentrate on any passage of scripture. I'm, I'm just so tired and so busy taking care of these children. There's grace here, all right? There's lots of grace here. Uh, you are part of the community anyway. And you need community because if you can't do it for yourself, then your husband ought to be helping you. And beyond that, you ought to be closely associated with other people in the body, other women in the body who are either texting you, emailing you, meeting with you, relieving you, so that you are being fed the word, maybe in short little chunks, maybe in short little prayers, here a little bit, there a little bit. That's why you need community. And you other ladies, you ladies who uh, have already finished raising your kids or your kids are old enough that you just don't care anymore, just kidding, that's not. Um, <laughs> Be aware, remember what it was like, remember what it was like, and move into the lives of the women in this church who are struggling with children who are, are just high-maintenance kids. And early on, all of them are. All, I mean, I'm not sure I was, but all of them. <laughs> we need to minister to them, because it's hard for them to spend time in the Word. Having said that, let's go back to everybody else who's not in that situation. 
I want to encourage you to consider not waiting until the evening, but discipline yourself to get up in the morning and spend time with God. Psalm 5, Psalm 5, 3, David said, In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. Psalm 88, 13, But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Psalm 57, 7 and 8, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. What's he doing? He's meeting with God in the morning. By the way, the King James there says, my heart is fixed, O Lord, my heart is fixed. We had, uh, how many of you remember Joy James? He used to be a kind of sort of part of this body. <laughs> he had to have heart surgery one time. Went to the hospital to visit him, and he, he had one of his kids printed off a little sign, and he put it on the end of his bed after his heart surgery, and he said, my heart is fixed, O Lord. My heart is fixed. <clears throat> he was a character. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place to pray, spend time with his Father. I mean, if he needed to do it, what about us? Dietrich Bonhoeffer suggests that for Christians, the beginning of the day should not be burdened and oppressed with besetting concerns for the day's work. At the threshold of a new day stands the Lord who made it. All the darkness and distraction of the dreams of the night retreat before the clear light of Jesus Christ and his awakening word. All unrest, all impurity, all care and anxiety flee before him. Therefore, at the beginning of the day, let all distraction and empty talk be silenced. And by the, by the way, that means your cell phone too. Let all uh, distraction and empty talk be silenced and let the first thought and the first word belong to him to whom our whole life belongs. By the way, that's why, that's why we do our worship service like we do. Let the first word belong to him. Ideally, again, not legalistically, ideally, we should make it our ambition to meet with the Lord first thing in the morning for communion with God. But what does that look like? What does that look like to communion with God? Now, I'm only going to be able to deal with this just a little bit this morning. You need to go to your small group tonight because you're going to talk about it some more there. And, and there are people in your group, for those of you who are really good at this, there are people in your group who really need you tonight. And, um, and so be there if you can. So practice, the practice of communion with God. Number one, just some essential elements here. Number one, read the scriptures. I, I know this sounds obvious, but um, you might think that communion with God means prayer. That would be like saying fellowshipping with my wife means I sit down with her and, and she listens to me talk. Um, that's not communion. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is interaction. And so it's not just prayer. Prayer is us speaking to God. This is not the listening room. It's not we're listening for voices from God. No, 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 no. We hear God's voice through his word. We respond to him in prayer. So Go to the Word of God first. Communion with God begins with reading the Bible. 
Remember what Jesus said to Satan when he was tempted to turn stones into bread? He was in great need. He hadn't eaten or, or drank anything in 40 days. And yet Jesus, quoting out of Deuteronomy, which you'll look at more closely tonight, said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Here's a way to think about it. Scripture is the soul's food. We feed our souls on Scripture. We get our spiritual nourishment, not by looking at the stars and enjoying nature or reading our favorite Christian authors. That may be good. No, our souls are nourished and strengthened by the Word of God. We need God's Word. The Revelation, in Revelation, uh, John's final book uh, in the New Testament, we read in Revelation 1 3, it's the very beginning of the book. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. You get this idea. You go to synagogue, right? Or in, in, by this time, you're meeting in homes with your local assembly, your church. And there's someone who reads the, the documents that are, that are being circulated by, by the apostolic authors. And, and at, at last, here comes John's final word in the book of Revelation. And he says, blessed is the one who reads and blessed are those who hear. Someone is reading the text. Others are listening to the text. You know what I do in the morning? I do both. I have my phone on the ESV Study Plus, um, you can say, read to me, <laughs> and it does. And I can tell you about my quiet time. Let me just tell you a little bit about what I do in the morning, and this is all in my phone, in my calendar. You can look at my calendar and see that first section of the day I got broken down into very specific segments. Now this body needs exercise. I need physical exercise. One of my needs is I gotta have exercise because I sit at a desk all day and I don't wanna die of a heart attack. So if somehow I gotta find time to get exercise. I do that best early in the morning. So I combine the two. I'll listen to six chapters of the Word of God as I walk in the morning. And as I'm listening, I'm repeating key phrases because in my mind I'll go, squirrel! <laughs> and then I'm off track. So I got to repeat back some of the things that I'm hearing as I'm listening, and then when I finish a chapter, I'll pray through a little bit. I'll pray back to God some things, respond in prayer to that chapter, just for a couple of minutes. Next chapter takes me 27 minutes to do my one and a half mile walk, and, uh, and I can get six chapters in usually, unless I'm in Isaiah, then it takes longer. Um, and then my phone will beep, and it'll say, time for meditation, okay? So meditation means I go into the house, grab my cup of coffee, I sit at a table, <clears throat> and now I'm focused on one passage of Scripture. I'm, I'm still in Isaiah. I've been in Isaiah, it seems like, forever. But I just read Isaiah. Just read it. I'm reading it carefully. I'm, I'm awake now because I've just walked a mile and a half. And I'm reading Isaiah, and I'm, and I'm saying, Lord, speak to me through your word. Holy Spirit, speak through your word. And I just read until something grabs me. And I focus on that, and I think about that. And I'm probably going to take a, a, a verse or two, and I'm going to, in my ESV Study Plus, I'm going to hit copy, and I'm going to go over to my notes, and I'm going to hit paste, and, and it's going to paste the verse, 
and its reference or the group of verses and its reference. And you know what, you know what I'll do the rest of the day? Sitting at a traffic light, Isaiah 57, 15. So this is the scripture I've been meditating on. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I've been drinking from that scripture all week long. But it came out of just some concentrated meditation on God's word, concentrated focus on God's word. And then my phone will beep, like 20 minutes into that, and it'll just say prayer. It's okay, and I got my prayer journal. My prayer journal right here, it's broken down into, into adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. You know, broken down, I mean, it's, it's, it's 200 pages uh, divided by five, and, and, and there's your things, there, there's your categories, or four. Um, and you start going through people who need prayer. Or maybe I just need to respond to the text that morning. Maybe I just need to spend all my time in confession. Maybe I just, out of a verse like that, I want to spend my whole time worshiping God. By the time I'm done, my heart is full. And I'm ready for the day. And I'm liable to get a, a text from one of the other brothers who's in the Word that morning, showing me what a little bit about what they read, and a, and a brief prayer for me and us for them. Uh, it's very simple, and it doesn't have to be as complex as mine, but it does require that you read Scripture. Let God speak to you through His Word. You're not listening for the Holy Spirit to say something in addition to His Word. You want to hear from His Word. And when I say hear, I mean in your mind you're reading the words and you're saying, help me understand. Help me understand what you're saying. What is it that you want me to see, to hear, to bring into my soul today? Now, practically speaking, oh, by the way, Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. <clears throat> and you know what the primary message of, uh, the primary theme of Psalm 119 is? The Word of God. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. You know where that comes from? Psalm 119. And there's like a thousand other scriptures like that in Psalm 119. Um, practically speaking, there are three things you need for productive, pr productive time in God's Word, fruitful time in God's Word. You know what they are? I'm sure you do, because they're listed. Time, place, and plan. You need a time. You ought, to, you ought to try to do it every day. I was talking to my kids yesterday. They were uh, harassing me because I was lecturing them all day, but one of the lectures I gave my kids yesterday was that you need self-discipline. You need spiritual discipline. You not only need to get up in the morning and brush your teeth every time, and that's, okay, but, uh, <laughs> but you also need to have a plan for the time you're going to spend time, time with God, the place you're going to do it, and your plan for how you're going to do it. Um, and time and place, that's entirely up to you. Just make sure it's a place that you probably get to every day, easily, easily. It shouldn't be, you know, a mile away where some mornings you're going to go up and say, oh, I don't have time to get there. It ought to be someplace in your house or in your backyard or somewhere. And, and considering, uh, concerning a reading plan, consider this. If you read three chapters per day and five on Sunday, you will finish the entire Bible in a year. Just reading it. 
And then secondly, so that's reading the scripture, number one. Number two is meditate on scripture. Unfortunately, the word meditation is usually identified with non-Christian systems of religion and thought. We naturally associate the idea of meditation with yoga, or uh, not yogurt, yoga, and transcendental meditation, or some kind of relaxation therapy, or the New Age movement. But just because there's a counterfeit form of meditation among the cults is no good reason to think disparagingly on biblical meditation. The kind of meditation encouraged by the Bible is different from the other kinds of meditation. For example, while many of the cults focus on you emptying your mind, that's why you sit in a lotus position and you say, Om. Don't do that. The whole point of that is to empty your mind. The scriptures never tell you to do that because your mind is never really empty. And uh, your heart is always filling your mind. And there's something you should know about your heart. It is desperately sick and deceitful. And so rather, we are repeatedly told in Scripture to fill our minds with God's truth. This kind of meditation is encouraged throughout Scripture. One of the first Scriptures I remember memorizing and used to be emblazoned on the front of my Bible was Joshua 1, 8, and 9. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have not I commanded you to be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid, neither be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I memorize that as probably a preteen. And the reason I can quote it today is because it was so precious to me then. You want to know how to be successful in God's eyes? Meditate on the word of God. Fill your mind with God's word and meditate on it day and night. Psalm 1. Um, Blessed is the man who does not, what? Walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. Okay, those are the things he doesn't do. Well, what does he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he what? Meditates on it when? Day and night. Okay, so now we've got not just morning, we've got morning and evening. In Psalm 119, 98 uh, and 99, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you come away feeling cold, like nothing really happened at the level of your heart. Everybody's experienced that. But Thomas Watson very wisely says, and, and eloquently says this, the reason we come away so cold from reading the word is, listen, because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. I, I agree with that. If all I do is read my six, or listen to my six chapters, I go away cold. But if I take something from those six chapters, and I focus on it, and I meditate on it, God, speak to me. What does this say about you? What does this say about me? What does this say about my ministry to others? What does it say about repentance? What are you teaching me about Christ? And meditate on those things, pray through those things. Practical suggestion for meditation, respond to one passage you have read by journaling. Journal. 
take the one scripture that stands out to you that morning and just write about it. Maybe just copy it. Whatever you do with your pen is going to slow your brain down and force you to unravel the Gordian knot that's in your head. It'll smooth it out. It'll put it in a straight line so you can think about it more clearly. Copy it or write it on a card or, or text it to yourself or email it to yourself. Um, whatever text speaks most powerfully to you and then think about it throughout the day. Have it available. Maybe it's a card or maybe it's on your iPhone or your droid and uh, you, you're at a traffic light. Listen, I get more time for prayer and meditation at the traffic light than any other time of the day except in the morning when I'm spending personal time with God. Traffic lights are a sanctifying experience. <laughs> Don't disparage having to stop. It is possible to read a torrential amount of scripture, Don Whitney says, and yet come away feeling unaffected and unchanged. Meditation on the word of God takes the words on the page, just a few, and drives them deep into our souls where they're most likely to bring about true worship, true praise, true thanksgiving, true adoration, true conviction, and true change. Our problem is not that meditation is difficult. It's not difficult. Of all the things that you do, this is not difficult. Our problem is that we are too distracted, intentionally distracted. In order to meditate on the scriptures, you're going to have to make some choices. There are things in your life that are not necessary. Um, <coughs> Facebook. <coughs> I, I'm just, excuse my cough. You have to choose to push aside some of the unnecessary distractions so that you can focus on God's word. You're going to have to make choices. I know you get in, in, in the car and the first thing you do is pop on the radio. I, I know that. I, I mean, I've done that. I, I do that if I'm not careful. But you know what? I'm learning that my soul is fed, not just distracted by the music, which is, which is what we like. We, we want happy distraction from our difficult experiences of life. There's something far richer than happy distraction. And that's the deep fellowship with the Lord in his word. So turn off the radio when you're alone in the car. Again, this isn't some kind of legalistic thing. I'm not telling you that God is commanding you to turn off your radio. There are sometimes I turn on my radio. There's nothing wrong with turning on the radio, depending on what you're listening to. Yeah. For those who diligently seek him, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Yes, that's not in the notes. Write that in. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We need this. We need self-discipline. Um, cut off the digital entertainment or work early enough in the evening to leave time for meditation. Just cut it off. Set a time. Say, you know, like 9 o'clock at night, um, everything goes off. Do something productive. Do something that's going to feed your soul. And let the last word be God's word as well. Copy scriptures from your digital Bible into your, note, into your digital notebook or whatever. We talked about that. Email it to yourself and review it during the day. So way of reading the Bible and meditating on scripture and then... Um, Third, uh, keeping in mind that reading is this, reading God's word is the soul's eating. Prayer, Thomas Watson says, 
Prayer is the soul's breathing. What breathing is to the body, Watson writes, prayer is to the soul. We absolutely cannot survive without it. How long can you hold your breath? It's no wonder we're not more holy and godly and productive, fruitful than we are. We spend, you know, 99% of our day holding our breath. There are some common reasons why we don't pray as we should. One common reason is I'm just too busy. Um, but what can, can we just be honest about the whole too busy thing? We're all busy. Yeah? Some of you saw me running this morning from the office to the chapel and back, and there are things to do. We're all busy. But that's not really the reason we don't pray. That's a feeble attempt to justify our lack of obedience to the clear teaching of Scripture. Lord, I'm busy. And, and, and you know what? I can, I can be just as busy in ministry as you can be in inspecting houses or writing computer programs or crunching numbers for someone or, you know, babysitting or whatever it is you do on the job, selling light bulbs or, or working on oil rigs or whatever it is you do. Everybody's busy. You should be busy. You should be working hard at whatever God has given you to do. But if you're so busy that you can't spend time with God in prayer, then you're too busy. And you're probably not too busy. Um, here, here's some real reasons. Lack of humility. We are hardwired to be fiercely independent. We are reluctant to admit that we are not really self-sufficient. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. And oh, how much nothing we do. The greatest indicator of our pride, um, Tom Pennington says, the greatest indicator of our pride is our prayerlessness. We don't think we need him. Lack of humility. Secondly, lack of faith. Often we don't pray because we don't really believe that prayer works. We don't always get what we want when we pray, so we get discouraged and we lose heart. Lack of obedience, this is really the foundational reason we don't pray. The scriptures repeatedly commands us to give ourselves to prayer. Romans 12, 12, be devoted to prayer. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. And beloved, communion with one another begins here. If we're going to experience true community with one another, it begins with our communion with God. And communion always involves prayer. It always involves reading the word, meditating on the word, and prayer. And that prayer may be prayer of confession. It may be prayers of worship. It may be prayers of adoration. It may be prayers of supplication. You know that other people have need, and, you, and, you're, and, and that's what this is full of. Prayer of supplication. And practically speaking, there are three things that you're going to need for effective prayer. You know what they are? You're going to need a time, a place, and a plan. And whatever you're doing for reading the Word of God, just use that as your time and your place. A plan? I can help you with a plan. We actually have a written plan that we could give you, and it explains how to do this. Um, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have some. Otherwise, you're just grasping, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna try to pray, and you're going to think, oh, well, I, don't, I can't think of anything to pray about. Show me a man or woman who's devoted to prayer, and I'll show you a person who loves God's word and is committed to investing time reading it every day. 
God said through the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. And how do you seek the Lord? How do you get to know him and learn how to live a life that is pleasing to him? You do that by reading and meditating on the word and by prayer. This is communing with God. Seeking God or communion with God, listen, seeking God, communion with God, Bridges writes, requires an intensity of mind and heart that is usually not possible, or is usually possible only during time alone with God. Let me read that again. Seeking God or communion with God requires an intensity of mind and heart that is usually possible only during time alone with God. If you're trying to do it while you're riding down the road, that's better than nothing, but it could be a lot better. If you're doing it while you're listening to the radio, you're just going to be distracted. It requires time when you can listen to God speak through his word and time to speak to God about everything that concerns and delights your soul. There's probably no better example of this kind of communion than in the New Testament narrative, Luke chapter 10. It's the whole Mary and Martha story, which, and I hear you're watching this, and it is time to quit. Um, Remember what Jesus said to Martha about her sister Mary? No, I'm not going to make her go help you. Um, She has desired the better thing, and it will not be taken from her. He said to Martha, there is one thing necessary. That's great to remember. You get up in the morning, okay, I got all these things to do. Yes, but hear the word of the Lord. There is one thing necessary. How many things? One thing. And what's that? Communion with God. The point of all of this, beloved, is that that if, if we're going to share with one another in communion, we must first have something to share. If we intend to share with other people in communion, we have to have something to share, something obtained through communion with God. Now, quickly, think about your personal time of communion with God. The psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you know what my experience has been? That if I'm delighting myself in the Lord, he becomes the desire of my heart. This is where the music breaks out. (laughs) The sunset comes down. (laughs) See the palm trees waving. Let's just pray. (laughs) Father, we're so thankful to you for your grace toward us. And um, just so good to be reminded. I've been so refreshed and convicted and helped by this study this week and these last couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you for the small group that you've put me in of of people who are ministering to my soul just by their being there and sharing their heart and wrestling with the scriptures and praying for one another, praying for me and my family. Father, I pray that you would use them tonight in my life and use me in their lives. Father, I pray that There wouldn't be a person in this room who has no good reason for for skipping out of that fellowship tonight and does. I pray, Father, that you would put it in their hearts to come, even if they're nervous about it and a little bit concerned about what might people think of them and will they be accepted. I pray 
Lord, that the motivating influence, motivating influence in them would not be fear of man, but that it would be obedience to your word. And then fill them, Father, with the joy of obeying your word. Bless us now, Father, as we go. I pray for the worship service to come. Use it, Father, to change us and help us to see the glory of Christ in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one thing, this is the end of my teaching. Next week, um, Keith will teach for two weeks. Same subject. We're moving forward. And after that will be Nathan Carruth. But right now, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>